everyone, and welcome to another edition of Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Trish, and I'm solo with you this week for another all-new episode. But before we get started, I want to give a shout-out to two of our listeners who recently sent us case suggestions. So thank you, our friend from the land of Viking and fjords, Lars and Anne W. They sent us two cases that we're currently researching and hope to have ready in the next couple episodes for you all. If you would like to reach out to us with case suggestions or even to introduce yourself and tell us where you're from, we would love to hear from you. You can reach out to us through our website, criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. On there, you'll also find our show notes and the resources we use to bring you our episodes. Please keep in mind that these are just our notes and we are no way seasoned writers. You can also contact us through our Facebook page with the same name, Criminal Discourse Podcast, or Instagram at Criminal Dis Pod. We also have a YouTube channel with brief snippets of our episodes, but we also have two full episodes that we've done. Those two cases, one is Butch DeFeo from the Amityville Murders and Kendall Francois, the Poughkeepsie Killer. All right, well, we're going to jump into this today, and we're going to Fort Pierce, Florida, which is a small-sized city located along the East Coast in St. Lucie County. It is known as the Sunrise City and is the sister city to San Francisco, California, which is known as the Sunset City. It is also home to the National Navy Seal Museum, and it is also known for its world-class fishing. So on Saturday, February 24th, 1996, 58-year-old Frank Black boarded Flight 45 with Kiwi Airlines at New York International Airport in Newark, New Jersey, and he was bound for West Palm Beach International Airport in Florida. Now, Frank was the owner-operator of a school bus transportation business, the Frank L. Black Bus Service, and this was located in Andover, New Jersey. And he had been quite successful in that business. So the reason for this short trip was for business and to further his already successful company. The plan was for him to fly down where he would be picked up at the airport by Mia Giordano, a business contact, and that he would then fly home in time for a meeting he had scheduled for Monday morning. Now, Mia was to take him to meet up with other business investors in what he hoped would be a lucrative business venture. At least Frank hoped that it would be lucrative as he was looking to sell his business and retire early. Now, on Monday, Frank's daughter had become concerned when he failed to return home on February 26, and she was unable to get a hold of him. So she ended up contacting the New Jersey State Police to report him missing. Now, Frank's family felt it was out of character for him to go radio silent. He was hands-on in his business and would constantly call in to check on how things were going, but nobody had heard anything. Detective Sergeant Lee Liddy was assigned to Frank's disappearance. Now, detectives started by talking to Frank's daughter, with whom he had that business meeting scheduled for Monday, and they were to discuss Frank selling his business. Sally Roberts, who was Frank's office manager and girlfriend, was also questioned. She shared that Mia Giordano had worked for Valdez Exporting, looking to purchase 60 conversion vans. Now, Mia had started calling Frank's office at the beginning of February, and office staff found it odd that Mia would stay on hold for long periods of time instead of leaving a callback number. She described herself to Frank so that he would be able to recognize her once he arrived at the airport as she was planning to pick him up. And she described herself as having blonde hair and standing about five feet, one inch tall. Next, detectives talked to the travel agent who booked Frank's flight. 
Now, she confirmed it was a one-way ticket to Florida, which airline records would show. And he hadn't arranged for any car rentals since Mia Giordano had planned to pick him up. And police could not find any area hotels where Frank was registered. Now, detectives checked to see if any of Frank's credit cards had been used upon his arrival in Florida. And they had been. So the Fort Pierce Police Department was contacted to pick up the trail. Now, Frank's card was used at the Embassy Suites in Riviera Beach between 1 and 2 a.m. on Saturday, February 25th. Then again, at 4 a.m., another credit card belonging to Frank was used to purchase gas at a station in North Miami. Now, what struck out to detectives was, huh, Frank didn't rent a car, so why was he getting gas? Now, in talking with the attendant that was working at the time, he didn't recognize Frank from a photo or the description of the mysterious Mia Giordano. When trying to track down the address for Valdez Exports in hopes of talking to Mia, detectives soon discovered mm, there was no such company registered in Florida. Finding Mia was proving difficult, as detectives couldn't find any Mia Giordano in either Florida or New Jersey. So on March 1st, 1996, a New Jersey detective traveled to Florida to aid in the investigation as there was still no trace of Frank. The only suspect they had, Mia, was untraceable at this point. Detectives were able to obtain phone records from New Jersey of Mia calling into Frank's business. Now, these calls were traced to a rented townhome in Jupiter, Florida, belonging to Elisa Costello. Now, Lisa Costello was not blonde, but she did fit the height description. All the calls made from Lisa's residence matched the calls made from Mia to Frank's office. Detectives soon confirmed that Mia was an alias and was, in fact, Lisa Costello. Now they had to figure out why the deception. Next, detectives went to the hotel that Frank's credit card had been used at in the early morning hours of the 25th. They were able to talk to a clerk that was on duty that night, and although she didn't recognize a photo of Frank, she did pick out Lisa Costello from a photo array of six women. She told detectives that the night the woman came in, she wanted to rent a room for her and her boyfriend but they were all booked up. The woman then used a credit card at one of the phones in the lobby to call around to other area hotels. Now, these calls matched the times Frank's credit card was being used. So now Lisa Costello was a person of interest. Detectives discovered from checking the car rental agencies around the airport that Lisa Costello had rented a car shortly before Frank's plane was to arrive. Detectives obtained a subpoena to impound the car Lisa had rented in hopes of finding some evidence that Frank was in that car. But their hopes were dashed when no trace was found and therefore no physical evidence linking Lisa Costello with Frank Black. Their next step was to start following Lisa covertly, trying to figure out her routine and who she came in contact with. They soon discovered that Lisa was dating a man named Alan Mackerley, who also owned the Bryan Bus Company in New Jersey. So guess who they started following next? Detectives found out that the two men had known each other and were business rivals since their businesses were only about 10 miles apart in New Jersey. Now, both had been friends and had known each other since their use, but when Mackerley started his own bus company, that seemed to sever their friendship. Phone records showed that Alan Mackerley had called Black's business from his home phone in Florida, and detectives wanted to find out what those calls were about. Now, in checking with Frank's office manager about the nature of their relationship outside of business, she reported, yes, they used to be friends, but that friendship had deteriorated. The last time she knew the men saw each other was at a business banquet in January of 1996. The men had gotten into it when Alan Mackerley confronted Frank about stealing a contract from under him and threatened to 
put him under. Now, this was due to Black undercutting Mackerly out of the contract. This was something Black often did in underbidding his competitors, which didn't make him popular with other bus company owners. Now, in 1996, there were approximately 300 private school bus contractors in the state of New Jersey. Black took the threat seriously, though, and would not attend any meetings Mackerly was at or at least not go to them alone. When asked by detectives, Mackerly denied that he had seen or talked to Frank Black recently. He flatly denied having any contact with him, especially in the days leading to his trip to Florida. Now detectives believe that both Mackerly and Costello were responsible for Black's disappearance and possible murder. But they needed proof, not just phone records and car rental receipts. Detectives applied for a wiretap warrant and were able to show a need for it. But unfortunately, they didn't hear a lot of conversations between Mackerly and Costello since Costello was now living with Mackerly. So the next step was to get approval for a listening device to be placed inside of Mackerly's house. Now, the issue was that to get approval, you needed a probable cause warrant for planting the listening device inside someone's home. And that was very limited. However, this case seemed to tick all the boxes at the time and the detectives were given the warrant. So they had planted the device and set up surveillance outside the home. The couple was extremely cautious, though, and seemed to know that they were being watched and listened to. Detectives would end up with hundreds of hours of music as Costello and Mackerly would turn up the radio in the kitchen when they would be talking. Now, coming up empty on the wiretaps and the listening devices, detectives were fearful that this couple may get away with murder. So in June 1996, Frank Lee Black was still missing. And that's at the time FBI agent Jay Miller asked to be assigned to the case. So the only move they thought they had at this point was to subpoena Lisa Costello and confront her with what they had, hoping she would talk. The twist here is that being subpoenaed, Lisa would be compelled to come in and tell them what she knew. And doing so would automatically give her immunity. So nothing she said could be used against her. So on June 13, 1996, Lisa Costello appeared before the state grand jury where she was mm, anything but cooperative. She refused to answer any questions put to her by the state's attorney. The judge even warned her that refusal to answer could put her in jail for contempt of court. And she still didn't answer. So she was taken off to jail. So once again, this gamble to gain evidence had seemed to backfire. But things started to turn around when a confidential source came forward with information from a witness to what happened to Frank Black. They were concerned not only could they get in trouble for what they knew, but also fearful of Alan Mackerley and his retribution. Bill Anderson, a former Marine pilot and a close friend of Alan Mackerley's at a time, who, by the way, also owned a bus company in New Jersey, Anderson had told agents that his friendship with Mackerley was strained, but he was still reluctant to tell him what they knew. But in August, agents served Anderson with a subpoena, feeling that he would use that as an excuse to tell them what he knew. He told them that Mackerley had bought a plane in early 1996 and asked him to be his private pilot because that's what he had done in the Marines. In March 1996, Anderson was contacted by Mackerley and he was told he needed him to take the plane out over the ocean. But the aircraft was currently grounded for repairs and Anderson suggested running another plane. But Mackerley told him it needed to be his plane because he didn't want anyone else to know about the flight. The reason? Mackerley told Anderson that he had shot Frank Black in the head and that they, Mackerley and Costello, had wrapped his body up in plastic and dumped his body in the ocean. 
but initially it didn't sink. So they had to cut into the plastic and then that's when the body slipped into the water. The worry that Mackerly had was that Black's body had resurfaced and he wanted to fly over the area to make sure it had it. But Anderson refused this request. So Anderson was sent undercover wearing a wire, which at first Anderson was very reluctant to do, but eventually he agreed. Anderson placed a call to Mackerly, luring him to his home, telling him that he had been served a subpoena, asking him what he should say. Now, one of the detectives would remain in the house hidden in case things went south. The plan had been to radio the detective when they saw Mackerly pulling up to Anderson's house, but they were unable to make contact. The agent, however, quickly hid while Anderson led Mackerly into the kitchen, showing him the subpoena. Mackerly whispered all of his responses, fearing that he was being listened to, but the wire was able to pick up the conversation. They discussed Anderson lying or refusing to answer any questions like Costello did. Mackerly even said that if Anderson was held in contempt of court and jailed, that he would then come forward and tell the truth. Mm, I'm not sure I'd trust that. Being paranoid, Mackerly didn't want to continue their conversation in the kitchen and went outside, walking close to where the surveillance team was sitting in the car. So although investigators had incriminating statements, they still didn't feel it was enough as they didn't have that confession. So meanwhile, Lisa Costello was still sitting in jail for the past three months. Investigators decided to talk to friends of hers and a former roommate to try to get some background information on Lisa. One roommate told police that Lisa used to sell cocaine and rohypnol. Investigators suspected that Costello may have drugged Black, rendering him unconscious. Now, once again, prosecutors talked to Costello, informing her, you can be charged with murder and it's in your best interest to tell us what you know. But once again, she refused to talk. Soon, though, she would be joined by Mackerly. And on August 29th, investigators moved in and arrested Mackerly as he was leaving to walk his dog. Now, this was seven months after Frank Black's disappearance, and they felt that this was their only move to do at the time. And it kind of paid off, because once Mackerly was arrested and that hit the news, his son-in-law contacted investigators to tell them that he had received a call from his father-in-law on February 25th, the day after Black arrived in Florida. Now, Mackerly asked him to come over and help him clean up his house. And when he arrived, he found Costello and Mackerly had been in the process of ripping up the carpet and some of the wall in the entryway of the home. Mackerly told his son-in-law that Frank Black was at his home, which surprised him as he knew the status of their relationship, and it wasn't a good one. Mackerly went on to say that due to the O.J. Simpson trial, they needed to make sure that there were no traces of blood. Now, the son-in-law reported that he didn't see any blood while he was there. The group, though, did use an industrial vacuum cleaner to suck up the debris and then took it to the waste dump at the Martin County landfill. The waste included drywall, carpet, and the vacuum cleaner itself. So the son-in-law story corroborated Anderson's story that Black was shot and killed in the entryway of Mackerly's home. Now, why the son-in-law didn't come forward until after Mackerly's arrest, mm, I'm not too sure, but it could have been, like Anderson, he was afraid of retribution. In August, the investigators sent an evidence recovery team to the landfill, and by looking from records from six months previously, they knew the general area to begin looking for the discarded items. So for three days under the hot Florida sun, ooh, that must not have been pleasant, the team searched and their search paid off. They found some drywall, carpet, and the vacuum they believed were from Mackerly's home. The evidence was taken to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement Forensics Lab. But unfortunately, none of these items could be matched to Mackerly's house. 
crime scene units also looked at Mackerley's entryway, and they were able to find traces of blood. But again, a definitive match could not be made. So investigators and prosecutors at this point were determined to build the strongest circumstantial case they could. So they spanned out to all the area stores and collected receipts from Mackerley's purchases that included bleach, trash bags, duct tape, and comic cleaner. So investigators around this time also got news from some inmates at the Martin County Jail that Mackerley, in May 1997, was looking to hire someone to kill Bill Anderson, believing that if he wasn't able to testify against him, the case would be dropped. So investigators tightened security around Bill Anderson and his wife to the point the couple was placed in the Federal Witness Protection Program. Now, you would think that Mackerley would be charged not only with witness tampering, but maybe even murder for hire. But unfortunately, the hitman was not a reliable witness, so those charges were never filed. Alan Mackerley's trial began in Vero Beach, Florida on January 20th, 1998, based solely on circumstantial evidence, as Frank's Black's body has never been found. State prosecutors were relying on case law that relied on the premise that no one should get away with murder just because they were successful in hiding a body. Prosecutors started out by showing the jury that Frank Black didn't plan a long trip to Florida, nor was he looking to disappear, as there was no evidence of planned disappearance or financial maneuverings for starting another life. Prosecutor's main witness was Bill Anderson and the conversation he had with his friend at the time, Mackerley. Prosecutor's theory of events was that on the evening of February 24, 1996, Lisa Costello, pretending to be Mia Giordano, picked up Frank at the West Palm Beach Airport. She took him back to Mackerley's house under the pretense that he would be meeting other business contacts there. Now, while waiting, prosecutors theorized that Costello drugged Frank's drink with Rohypnol, and Black wouldn't have noticed his drink was drugged as Rohypnol is colorless, tasteless, and odorless, hence why it's known as a date rape drug. Now, once the drug had taken effect and Frank passed out, Costello took Frank's wallet to later go out and lay a false trail. Now, meanwhile, Mackerley attacked Frank, shooting him in the head in the entryway of his home. Now, after wrapping up Frank's body, Mackerley took the body out on his speedboat and dumped his body 16 miles offshore after stabbing through the plastic to get the body to sink. Returning home, the couple began to tear out anything that had blood on it and wiping it down with bleach. Now, the jury hearing all of this evidence, believed the prosecution's case. And on February 4th, 1998, they came back with a verdict of guilty of kidnapping and murder. So Lisa Costello finally got smart. And faced with murder charges, she finally gave a full statement. Probably helped that Mackerley was convicted. But she received a plea deal to third-degree murder and false imprisonment and was sentenced to 10 years in prison with time served. And she was released in 2004. Now, on appeal in 2001, Mackerley had his kidnapping conviction overturned since the Florida State Supreme Court felt that Frank Black had traveled to Florida under his own volition. So Mackerley was retried a second time, but that ended in a mistrial when one juror voted to acquit. So another trial was held in 2003, where this time he claimed that he did lure Frank Black to Florida, but he didn't kill him. He claimed it was Costello that shot him in self-defense and disposed of his body. Mackerley told the jury that 
Black had become angered when he discovered the deception and attacked Lisa Costello. She, in turn, hit him on the head with an exercise weight, killing him. He claims that he was on his yacht the entire time of the murder and the disposal of the body. But once again, the jury didn't seem to believe him. Now, Alan Mackerley was 59 at this time, was convicted of first-degree murder, again, and sentenced to life in prison on March 15, 2003. And that is the case of the murder of the millionaire, Frank Lee Black. All right, everybody, I do have some crime update news for you on two cases that we have covered. So I want to do that quickly before I sign off here. So our first update is on the Christian Kit Martin trial. We covered this case in season one, I believe episode 24. This is the triple murder out of Pembroke, Kentucky in 2015. So apparently a new box of evidence was recently discovered. This was a box of evidence that apparently wasn't processed by police. So now it has to be processed and that information given to the defense. And Christian's trial is set to begin on May 31st. So I don't know if that'll be delayed now because of this evidence, but I do know prosecutors did take away the death penalty. So it is not a death penalty case. And the second update is Sheila Keen Warren. This is also from season one. This was episode 14. She was recently denied bond and her trial is set to begin September 8th for the murder of Marlene Warren in Florida in 1990. And apparently Sheila Keen Warren allegedly did this dressed as a clown. Hence why it's called the killer clown murder. She has been charged with first degree murder. She will also not face the death penalty. She originally was, but they did take that away. So Sheila Keen Warren has been sitting in jail since 2017. And again, her trial is to begin September 8th. So thank you all for taking the time to listen. And Maddie and I would just ask that if you like the episodes we've done so far here at Criminal Discourse, if you could leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to us on, we would appreciate it. And if you would leave us a five star, we'd appreciate it even more. So until next time, if you see something, say something, you might have that missing piece of the puzzle it takes to solve a crime. So please stay safe out there. We hope you're all able to get your vaccine if you want to now so we can start getting back to normal. And we also need to remember, let's be kind to one another. So until next time, guys. Bye. Bye.